Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Good morning. We're continuing this series called The Four. As we read through the Bible with our F260 reading plan, we are currently in that plan going through the Gospels. And so over this month, we are going to be spending some time just diving in to each of the Gospels just for one or two Sundays each. And the goal is really to get to know the author, something about the author or something that he tells us about who Jesus is and what he's done. And this week we are on the Gospel of Luke. And uh, Luke, if you know anything about Luke, Luke was a doctor. He was a doctor. And he has a very interesting and unique beginning to his gospel. In fact, we have it, I think, on a slide. He starts off by saying in verse 1 of chapter 1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. But what does all that mean? Luke starts off his gospel saying that this gospel is first and foremost historical research. He's writing to this guy named Theophilus, who was not Jewish, we think he was a Gentile, to let him know that Luke has done his research. He uses words like investigation, events, certainty. Luke has done his historical research so that he can convince Theophilus that what he's already been taught about Jesus is true. Like it's not a myth, it's not a metaphor. These are historical events that actually happened in time and in space. And he's writing them down for Theophilus so that Theophilus can read Luke's account and go, oh yeah, I've heard that story about Jesus somewhere else. Luke is telling me that it really did happen. And Luke wants Theophilus to know that as a Gentile, he can have trust and certainty that these events about Jesus actually happened and that he as a Gentile is free to participate in the story of Jesus by placing his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's where Luke starts off. One of the unique things about Luke is that he's really heavy on the parables. Matthew has parables as well, but Luke has the most parables. Parables are simply a spirit or a story that has a spiritual meaning about what it means to know God or what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. And Luke has about 24 parables, and 18 of those parables are unique, which means that's something special that Luke was really trying to use to communicate. And today, we're going to be looking at one of those parables from Luke 18, 9 through 14. Now, this is a familiar parable. It's one about a Pharisee and a tax collector. But we're going to pray and ask that the Lord would take it to a deeper layer of our heart this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we read your word, we just ask that you would help us, that you would be with us, that we would get out of this parable what you mean for us to get out of it. We thank you for Luke and the research that he did 2,000 years ago, guided by the Holy Spirit, so that we could have this very story today. Jesus, make us more like you. And all God's people said, amen. 
All right, Luke 18, starting with verse 9. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept, kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, meaning the tax collector, this one went down to the house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of God. You know, there's one attitude in marriage that you have to avoid if you want a healthy marriage. There's one attitude that you must avoid in marriage if you want to have a healthy marriage. Now, we might think it has something to do with money or or sexuality or forgiveness or something like that, and all those things are good things. But John Gottman is a marital relationship expert, and he has studied literally thousands of relationships. And he says that there's one attitude that if it shows up in marriage, it can literally destroy the marriage. And he says that just by listening to couples talk to each other, he can tell whether that attitude is present. He says that one attitude, that one word, that one characteristic is contempt. When contempt makes its way into a marriage, it can be destructive. It can kill the relationship. And that makes sense because contempt is simply despising something about someone else to the point where that thing that you despise about them becomes who they are, and then you end up despising them. And if marriage is about delight, it's hard to have delight when you despise, right? Gottman says that contempt is a marriage killer. But I think it's more than just a marriage killer. I think it can be a killer between any kind of relationships. Once you have contempt for a friend or a coworker or a neighbor, everything just starts to get destructive. Not only that, but I think contempt can be a killer in a culture. Like once a culture starts to have contempt for one another, it is hard for that culture not to splinter into a thousand factions. I think we even saw that this week when all the images of Afghanistan came out, right? And it was tragic to watch. My heart hurt, and I know yours did as well. But it was interesting how quickly all the pundits talked about other people with contempt. You know, here we have a 30 or 40 year history in this country, and everyone is looking for that one person to blame, that one person that they can hold in contempt. And it's not that those things aren't important. It is important what happened. It is important that we take responsibility. Yet at the same time, I found it was interesting that so many political advisors and political uh, pundits 
had someone that they wanted to hold in contempt for everything that happened in Afghanistan. What's behind contempt, though? What's behind contempt, I think, is two things. It's an attitude that says, when it comes to the right kind of people in the world, it's me. I'm the right kind of person. I see this issue in Afghanistan clearly, and I would have made the right decision. I'm the right kind of person in my neighborhood. I I clean up my trash. I wave to my neighbors when I see them. I'm the right kind of person in this marriage. I mean, I really go out of my way to serve my spouse, so I'm the right kind of person. And then what goes along with that, once you say I'm the right kind of person, what's next? Well, they're the wrong kind of person, right? They're the wrong kind of person because they don't. And then what happens is contempt. Contempt comes from seeing ourselves as the right kind of person because, fill in the blank, and other people as the wrong kind of people because they don't live up to that very standard. But here's the challenge. We can be so convinced about others being wrong that we never see that we're wrong about being right. We can be so convinced and so convinced that we're right about others being wrong that we never see we're wrong about being right. Jesus tells this story into that very attitude of contempt. In verse 9, Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Jesus tells this parable for the place in our hearts where we go, I'm the right kind of person, and they're not. And so I view them with contempt. And the two characters in this story, he tells us in verse 10 that there's two characters, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And Pharisees, well, they they were the right kind of people. Uh, They took God's law very seriously. If God commanded that his people fast once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, the Pharisees said, let's obey that even more. Let's fast twice a week. If God commanded that his people tithe, give a tenth of all they own, the Pharisees made sure that they took their spices out of the spice cabinet and cut up a tenth of that to give to God. They were the right kind of people because they took God's law very seriously. The tax collector, wrong kind of person. Tax collector was the wrong kind of people. And we've talked about tax collectors over the past few weeks. They were the wrong kind of people for two reasons. They were traitors. When Rome had come in to occupy the Holy Land, tax collectors left the loyalty to God's people and instead joined sides with the Romans. And they were employed by them to tax their own people. They were traitors. But not only that, they were thieves. Because there was some wiggle room with the laws. And so if the Romans said, hey, so-and-so owns a boat, you can tax him 10% of the boat's worth, the tax collector could say, let's make it 12 and I'll keep the 2%. And so they were viewed as the wrong kind of people because they were traitors and they were cheats. What about you? 
in your mind, what makes someone the right kind of person? As, as we look at this Pharisee, he thought he was the right kind of person because of how seriously he took God's commands. What makes you in your mind the right kind of person? And by connection, as you look at others, what makes them the wrong kind of people? Uh, one of my friends used to have one of those Brita water filters. Do you remember that you put in your fridge and then it was empty and you filled it up with water and then you put it back? And he would say there's only two kinds of people in the world, those who refill the Brita and those who don't. Now we can laugh, but there's something in each of our hearts that takes so seriously that I'm the right kind of person because I'm not like those other people. Now, the setting we see in this story is in the temple. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector are going up to worship God at the temple. The temple was where God lived. And they would have services where people gathered in the outer court of the temple, and there they could see the altar where a lamb would be sacrificed. A a spotless lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And during these services, the Psalms would be read, and an animal might be slaughtered, and then the priest would disappear into the inner sanctuary of the, table, of the temple to make atonement for the sins of the people present. And as the priest was inside the temple, that is when the people had a chance to pray. As the atonement was being offered for the forgiveness of sins, that's the very moment where we're privy to the prayers of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what we hear from the tax collector is this is his prayer. I'm the right kind of person. Thank you that I'm not the wrong kind of person. What does he say in verse 11? The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I got. God, thank you that I'm the right kind of person and I'm not like these wrong kinds of people. Now, we might not ever pray that in church. We might not ever pray anything like that in our home, but there are times when our heart yells it out. God, I thank you that I am so sold out for you And I'm not like these Christians who don't take anything seriously. God, I thank you that I work hard and I'm not lazy like these other people. God, I thank you that I have overcome so much in my life and I'm not like these people who are cowardly and can't overcome a challenge. God, I thank you that I take my recovery so seriously and I'm not like these people who don't. God, I thank you that I see the issues of justice with crystal clear perspective and I'm not like these people who don't care about justice or ignore justice. God, I thank you that I have all the issues in my mind right when it comes to politics and I'm not like these people who don't understand politics at all. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Now here's the weird thing. All that stuff is good. All that stuff is important. It's all good and right things. And the very things that the Pharisee prays about, about other people, are bad things. 
So when he uses the word greed, it's not just general greediness. The word behind that is the word extortion, which means that the tax collector is using his power to take money that is not his own. That's evil. And then the Pharisee says, thank you that I'm not greedy. Thank you that I don't extort people. Thank you that I'm not unrighteous. And what's bound up in that word is also the word unjust. Thank you that I don't deceive people and take what's not mine. Those are things that you don't want to do. And the Pharisee's right to see that those things are evil. But first of all, he, he doesn't see how he's wrong about the other people being wrong. In Luke 3, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and everybody starts to repent because that's what you do when John the Baptist shows up. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? We're tax collectors. How do we do a 180? And he, John the Baptist, told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. The Pharisee isn't even right about what he thinks is wrong. Because John the Baptist didn't tell him to stop being, didn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. We see Jesus called that called Matthew out of his lifestyle of tax collection, but John the Baptist doesn't tell these guys to. So the Pharisee isn't even right about how wrong the tax collectors are. But not only that, he's so wrong about how right he thinks he is. In Luke eleven forty two. Jesus comes at the Pharisees and says, Woe to you, Pharisees. You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass injustice, or you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisee is so maddened by the injustice of the tax collector that he can't see how he himself is unjust. He can't see that in being so convinced that he's right about everything that he does, that he's actually missing the very thing that he's condemning the tax collector for. St. Augustine says that this Pharisee is like a sick man who goes to the doctor and tells the doctor about someone else's sickness. How, How could the Pharisee be so wrong about being right. Well, he's looking at the wrong target. There he stands in the temple in front of the altar, which is for the forgiveness of sins. But he doesn't see that. He's looking to his left and his right and seeing other people. In 2004, Matt Emmons was a United States sharpshooter in the Olympics. And I promise this will be my last Olympics illustration for a while. But Matt Emmons went to the Olympics and he was a sharpshooter in the competition and he was one of the best. And all day he shot straight and true so that his score was really high. And as he came into the last last round, all he had to do was basically hit the target. And if he hit the target, he didn't need a bullseye. If he hit the target, he would win the gold. And so he went to his lane and he aimed at the target and he hit the target and it was a great shot. Except he looked up, he looked up to the scoreboard, and the scoreboard said zero. He was confused. Until a judge came over to him and said, you made a great shot, 
that you made it at the target in the lane to the left of you and not the target you were aiming at. Emmons would go on to say, I was actually the best on the line that day. And we're like, well, the best on the line hits the right target. That's a little bit like the Pharisee. There the Pharisee stands in front of the altar where the lamb is sacrificed. That's where we see the holiness of God, his wrath against sin. And the only hope that we have is for forgiveness, that something would die in our place. Yet the Pharisee isn't looking down the lane towards that. Instead, he's looking around and seeing how wrong everyone else is compared to him. And by doing that, he might think that he has hit a bullseye. He's not even shooting in the right lane. The tax collector, on the other hand, the tax collector's aim is straight and true because there he stands in front of the altar, looking at the altar and deeply aware of who he is before a holy and righteous God. In verse 13, it says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I'm here in front of you, and I'm the wrong kind of person. Don't even look at me, God. Please, don't, let, don't look at me. If you see me, you will see someone who is the wrong kind of person who has desperately followed short of your commands. I haven't even tried to keep your commands. I have fallen so short that I hold myself with contempt. The, the man's beating his chest, and this isn't some sort of penance he's doing, uh, one commentator said that when people beat their chest, it was usually women who were mourning. And so he's stepping out of social norms because he is in this moment where he just feels contempt for who he is before an almighty God. Now I know in this moment, we talk a lot about mental health. We might ask the question, is it good to despise yourself? Is it good what this tax collector is doing, beating his chest and feeling this shame and guilt? Isn't that unhealthy? Well, I guess his options would be to avoid any trigger of shame, to not go into the presence of God because that might trigger him in his shame, or maybe to deny his guilt and say, I made the best decisions I could at the time. But I find both of those options terribly inauthentic for how I experience myself. That the tax collector didn't avoid what would trigger shame, nor did he deny his guilt. Rather, he came before the altar and said, here's who I really am. I can't avoid it. I can't deny it. I am a sinner. Please, as you see me, as I really am, please don't give me, God, what I deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. Please give me mercy. The priest just said that that lamb on the altar could atone for my sins. I, I don't know if it could because my sins are so bad. I'm just the wrong kind of person. Please have mercy on me. See, while the Pharisee was wrong about being right, the tax collector's right about being wrong. 
Both of them were actually unjust people. The tax collector and the Pharisee, both were unjust, but only one of them walked away justified. Jesus tells us who it is in verse 14. I tell you this, I tell you, this one, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The wrong kind of person was declared the right kind of person, not because he was right, but because his confidence was in the mercy of God. Because his greatest hope and his only hope was the forgiveness that God offered to him. And so he cries out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, there it is. That wrong kind of person, that's actually the right kind of person. If you really want to take this deep into your heart, you need to ask yourself some questions. First of all, you need to ask yourself, who do you see as the wrong kind of person? Only you can answer that. The the, the people that, if you're honest, you have contempt for. If you want this parable to go deep in your heart, you have to be willing to ask yourself that question. And when you answer that question, which I find is easier to answer than this question, you have to answer this question, which is, what about me? me makes me think I'm the right kind of person. And it's so deep in our heart, we can even say this, oh, I don't do that. I don't look at others and say they're the wrong kind of people. Uh, And I don't think I'm the right kind of person, which makes me the right kind of person. You really can't get away from this attitude of self-righteousness and contempt unless you go to the mercy of God. Because it's not in front of the altar but in front of the cross where Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, was sacrificed for you and me, that things really become clear. That we see that there's so many issues in our world, there's so many relationships that we have, and it's so easy in the midst of the mess that is our culture right now, it's so easy to look at other people and have contempt. But at the, at the foot of the cross, where you see that a holy and righteous Savior went there for you, that's when things become clear because you really realize that you're no different than anyone else. Your sins are just as nasty as the next person, but yet the free mercy of God, the blood of Jesus spilled for you, atones for your sins so that the wrong kind of person like you can be declared right. Not because you've done right, but because Jesus was righteous for you. Christianity is an upside-down kind of religion. It really is. Most religions focus on trying to make you the right kind of person. Christianity doesn't start there. Now, don't get me wrong. Following Jesus is hard. We can't just do whatever we want. We're called to live out righteousness. Yet, The foundation for that is not our willpower. It's not our good decisions. It's not not based on us being the right kind of people. It's based on the forgiveness that we get from the mercy of Jesus. And that makes us a different kind of people. A different kind of people. 
are people who are confident that they're the wrong kind of people, but they have a righteous God who loves them. In fact, that, that, that's what this table is for. This table is a meal for the wrong kind of people. The wrong kind of people. Uh, people who would humble themselves before God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, we look around the world and we have contempt for other people's sin. But when we get honest and see our sin before God, it lowers us before him. And the only hope we have is what Jesus has done for us. And if you're struggling with contempt right now, maybe you need to look at this table and remember what Jesus has done for you. Because he had every reason to look at you and see your sin and view you with contempt. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Jesus had every reason to look at us with contempt, but he didn't. He looked at us with love. And he went to the cross to sacrifice himself for you and I. So to be quite honest for, with you, if you think you're the right kind of person, this table's not for you. We're not here to play church. We're here because we need the mercy of God. But if you look at yourself and you say, you know what? I love Jesus. and I'm a whole lot better than I used to be. But you know what? This past week, I messed up again. I should have loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I should have loved my neighbor like I'm set myself. But if I'm honest, I'm terribly selfish. And sometimes I totally ignore God. And I come again before you, God, and say, I'm the wrong kind of person. Have mercy on me, a sinner. If that's you, if your only hope is in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, this table is for you. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. Download our app by searching New City HH in your app store. We'll see you next week.